Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our critics series, I will be joined by my friend Sebastian Eduardo Di Giovanni for a conversation about Paolo Sorrentino. We have already talked about his most famous work, the Oscar-winning La Grande Bellezza, The Great Beauty, on its 10th anniversary this year, by the way. We have also done a podcast about The Hand of God, his uh, latest movie, which was a Netflix movie. And we might talk about some of his uh, other movies in, in future. We would like to do a series. And so the third in our Sorrentino series, today's discussion is his second movie, which is almost 20 years old. It came out in 2004. It's called The Consequences of Love, The Consequences del Amore. The movie is uh, very unusual in the Sorrentino uh, repertoire. I think in America, primarily Sorrentino is known for The Great Beauty, the Oscar winner, which reminds people of Fellini, of La Dolce Vita, of uh, perhaps a bit of neorealism, of also the splendor of Italy. And of course, uh, you know, also directed the HBO series, sensation series, I should say, The Young Pope, starring the handsome and intriguing Jude Law as the world's first American Pope, who is also the world's most reactionary Pope, a wonderful miniseries that everybody should watch. Sorrentino might not be sufficiently understood in his context. La Consequenza dell'Amore, I believe, is the best introduction to his style. You already find in the main role, Tony Servilio, starring as a kind of Sorrentino protagonist. Unhappy, sophisticated, fastidious, highly somehow in love with beauty and therefore in a terrible uh, bind in the modern world, which is not a world that really counts on beauty or in which beauty really counts. Also, one of the strange influences on Sorrentino that is not much talked about is the most famous or infamous uh, right-wing French writer of the 20th century, Louis Ferdinand Céline, the author of Journey to the Edge of the Night, Voyage au bout de la nuit, which is a kind of manifesto novel for nihilism. And nihilism is the great concern. Beauty and nihilism, you could say, is the tension that uh, animates Sorrentino's work and to the extent to which he is a humanist, precisely because he wants to wrestle with this question and he embodies it in the protagonist played by Tony Servilio in The Consequences of Love. And the quote from Céline is present in this movie as also in The Great Beauty. It's one of the signs that Sorrentino cares a lot more about novels and in a certain way about the past, about possibly reactionary thinking or the memory of the European past before the 20th century. And therefore, there's something very intriguing in both the, his literary references, especially because Consequences of Love is full of literature. It's his most literary movie in the sense that uh, his narrating protagonist speaks in paragraphs, speaks in prose poems. He's quite uh, fascinating, not just fastidious from that point of view. But it's also because the movie itself, aside from the narrator, moves and reasons and has the taste of a novella or a late 19th century novel. It's concerned with what might drive a man crazy? How do we begin to do unusual things? Why are we so fascinated by something suddenly unusual happening in a story that is somehow uh, full of the middle class, even short habits that we all have and then perhaps to some extent regret? So uh, it, it's a great mix of uh, the novel or short story or novella and the movie. It's a great mix of the 19th and 20th century arts. It's 
maybe best education for somebody who wants to get into cinema for that reason. And it uh, reminds us that Sorrentino is a writer, not just a director, that he is a novelist, of course, and an essayist as well, and might therefore bring the arts back together, uh, might remind people that the arts belong in a certain kind of union in their genres, in their forms, in their mutual influence, and, and that somehow they are more necessary now than they have been a while, or perhaps it's just that we are better able to pay attention to the unity of the art, to the unity of concern, can beautiful storytelling show us ourselves to ourselves in, in, a, in, in a moving and perhaps a useful way? So uh, this is a very brief uh, manifesto, if you will, for Sorrentino, for our interest in his movie, for the pleasure we take in the beauty that, that he offers. These are very well-crafted stories. And uh, I think this will have to suffice uh, for now. Now, Sebastian, thank you very much for joining me again. Uh, it's lovely to have these conversations with you. So tell us, first of all, how did you discover the Consequenza dell'Amore? How do you feel about Sorrentino? Hi, Titus. Thank you for having me again. Actually, it's his first movie I got to see, and I discovered it by sheer chance, you know, admitting there is such a thing as chance, but... Because of his soundtrack, I am a big fan of um, soundtracks in general. As a modern medium of music, it's the only one that compares to classical music. So uh, Spotify, uh, for once, got it right. And many years ago, you know, that um, if you like this, you should li listen to that part of Spotify. And it suggested to me, I listened to this Pasquale Catalano soundtrack about his movie, Le Conseguenze dell'Amore, you know, and... I mean, the soundtrack, it's incredible. It's possibly my favorite soundtrack of a Sorrentino movie. And that's saying a lot because beating La Grande Bellezza is not easy. So I love the music so much that I said, okay, what is this movie? And who is this Paolo Sorrentino? Now, this is way before La Grande Bellezza and possibly even before, no, definitely before Il Divo about Giulio Andreotti, the politician. And I immediately loved it. I, I, I found the movie, watched it, I think, twice in a row, which really happens these days. And yeah, I owe this movie and thus the discovery of Sorrentino in its entirety to music, to the soundtrack. That, and, and, you know, then I said, OK, who is this guy? What, ha what has he made? And uh, it was his second movie, I think, isn't it? Uh, the Consequence, Consequence of his second movie. The first one... Um, L'Uomo in Pew, maybe, yeah, L'Uomo in Pew, which I don't know if you guys have, and thus I started falling in love with Paolo Sorrentino's style, and shortly after Il Divo came out, and, you know, that was it for me. This is uh, an important thing to set off at the beginning, how both of the time the music is of the early 2000s or late 90s, but also how evocative of, of the entire generational shift, the coming to maturity of what in America we call Gen X, people who live in the shadow of the boomers, the 68th generation, as we might see in Europe, the people who live with a, a certain unsatisfied and possibly unsatisfiable longing, genetics restored kind of romanticism to the arts, at least for a while. And I think this came out above all in a music that was looking for uh, new sounds and for uh, new ways to show what it means to wander, what it means to be displaced, what it means to be in some kind of uh, spiritual search. 
that uh, again that is uh, connects very well to the problem of nihilism of the fin du siècle of the France that Louis Ferdinand Céline uh, loved and, and which broke his heart. But it's not just the beautiful music, it's the beautiful cinematography of yeah. Gatsi, yeah, that, right? It's the, the music was just the entrance and then the movie came and I mean, what's not to love? It's It has all the traits of what Sorrentino would become a little bit later, but you can already spot, uh, first of all, the not the absence of plot, rather... It just evolves naturally and you don't know where he's actually trying to take you. He reminds me of Terence Malick sometimes, which he also, uh, Sorrentino admitted, he's one of his great inspirations, uh, Terence Malick. And, you know, it's a story about this, again, a story about a lonely man. In the end, all his protagonists, if you think about it, in all his movies are kind of lonely. They might be surrounded with people like uh, Jeb Gambardella, or even Giulio Andreotti, the prime minister in Il Divo. But he talks about how loneliness can be a very intimate thing. So you, in the external world, you might be surrounded and adored and rich and powerful. But in the end, at night, you're always alone. Now, in this movie, though, the protagonist is literally alone the whole time. And as you said, he talks about, he talks with these almost aphorisms. He doesn't talk a lot at all but he just gives you these insights that actually occur in his mind obviously it's uh it's quite straightforward you know the plot uh he's a businessman or an accountant actually and we never know why he's almost sealed confined in this hotel and he's the most boring person you can imagine and he says so himself he's got no imagination uh who falls in love Although it's never quite explicit, but you can he falls in love with the waitress of this hotel. And I don't want to spoil any more of the plot, but things start to go south from there. There, there are more silences than than words in this movie, which I love. There's many uh, long shots and uh, ample silence. I remember Sorrentino talking about why he shot this movie in the first place. And the story is... He was actually fascinated by two things, hotels, for whatever reason, but that's Sorrentino. He's got weird fascinations. And he, it was a period in his life where he started focusing on mafia. Now, he's Neapolitan, but he is um, he wasn't really fascinated by his own mafia they have in Campania in, in Naples, which is Camorra. He's fascinated by the Sicilian one because it's ancient, they've got codes, they've got rituals. So he came across this idea about doing a mafia. It was supposed to be a full mafia movie located in a, in a, in a Swiss hotel. That's the idea that came to his mind. And then the movie, while it has mafia connotations, it, it's actually about something else, which is love. It's possibly also a, the weirdest mix of music he chooses because it, 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 it goes from classical to electric music quite in, in a quite um, disinvolved or in a, if in, in, a, in a free way. And when they asked him, how did this happen? Like, what, what, this really weird choice of music. And he honestly replied, oh, it was just the music I was listening at the time. This electric music was just what I was listening at the time to. So if he were, were to listen to some other sort of music, maybe we would have had a completely different movie. Every movie of Sorrentino, music is an integral part of of the of, of the flick 
So this music really gives energy to what would otherwise be not a boring movie, but a very slow-paced one. It, it has all the elements that would later make Sorrentino, to Sorrentino, probably your audience is most aware of, uh, with HBO series about a uh, young pope and then the new pope, and especially the great beauty. So yeah, I think that's a, such an important thing to see. Uh, a young artist, it's just his second movie. He was uh, writing scripts. Most of them didn't work out. Some of them suddenly turned into movies. And that, that would seem to suggest uh, a young man hasn't found himself. There's a lot of happenstance. But in fact, as you suggest, it shows that the, the young artist already had great confidence in his taste great confidence in his ability to bring a character, bring a setting, and bring an entire musical mood to the story so that the audience is carried through without any sense of boredom, simply by what is at first fascinating and then a bit disturbing. Without necessarily liking this man, the protagonist, Tita Di Girolamo, we are very interested in his fate, and he says just enough scene after scene to keep us a bit more interested and to reveal himself a bit more. And I think it's the kind of movie that you have to see a bunch of times to figure out why does this make sense? That, that you're fascinated by it is one thing. Know, it's, it's a boring life and we like it's it's shot beautifully, okay? When the camera starts moving, following somebody from behind a chair, in a little alcove in a, the, the cafe of this uh, rather upscale hotel in Lugano in Switzerland. It's just nice to see these things. It's strange to see these people. You wonder who might be involved in, in what kind of life or in what kind of uh, dealings in, in such a, a pleasant and old-fashioned place. But that's that doesn't quite explain why it makes sense, why it feels satisfying emotionally, aesthetically, and why it becomes memorable. I think that's where you see the an artist who had a unity of conception can bring together these things that you mentioned. Sorrentino's fascination with the mafia, which obviously did not stop in the early 2000s, but, uh, but which brings this uh, interest in the combination of secrecy and formality. There's something almost esoteric about the mafia, kind of arcane knowledge, a kind of insider exclusivity that uh, perhaps is more easily associated with the extremely rich or such things, but in fact exists at the bottom of society, so to speak, as easily or perhaps more easily than at the very top. Uh, there are more exposés about obscure rich people than there are about uh, the obscurities of organized crime for obvious reasons. We do not live in a world of very courageous people. It would be a dangerous thing and therefore, in a way, an attractive thing to see that, you know, the world all of these things still happen. And, and maybe that's the, the, the issue of the hotel. Somehow our world is not entirely unlike a hotel, as uh, we see from the success of things, say, like uh, Airbnb. You can invade anybody's home and make up stories about their identity and they'll invite you to do it for a very small price. That's the weird Airbnb world where nobody's home is really his own. Mm -hmm. Every home is sort of available. It's not really personal. Strange. Hotels have that quality. You wonder what kind of lives do people live there? What brings you there in a place where you realize you're not at home? You're faking having a home. That's what the hotel is about. And therefore, human possibilities in this specifically modern or even postmodern situation, you're dislocated. Your home away from home just means you don't have a home. And you, 
begin to look at yourself. What happens to you when you're not at home? When your habits have something artificial about them, when you're maybe a bit too much on display, you're uh, living in a glass house now, people can see you. It's what uh, makes it so plausible that our protagonist has a literary interest in confessing and telling you his story, although only little by little. First half of the movie largely shows this guy and his life of perfectly regular habits. And the second half of the movie shows that those habits fall apart and shocking things happen. But throughout, little by little, we learn more about this uh, Tita Di Girolamo. As you said, he was in business. He was uh, playing with people's money, investments, and what have you. And apparently mafia money too. And one day he lost a lot of money. Without giving too much away... But then again, there's no real plot, so there's no spoilers. <laughs> he confesses to this beautiful waitress who he falls in love with. We, we should also note that stunning girl, uh, that's uh, Anna Magnani's nephew. That's Olivia Magnani, who for some mysterious reason didn't make any other movies or not too many ones. But anyhow, he falls in love and um, he has a, a habit. He unfortunately has a heroin addiction but he's very fastidious about it. Only once a week on, I think, Wednesday mornings at 10. And for 20 more years, he always kept that discipline. Once he breaks that uh, regimen, and that's when he confesses, uh, after he confesses his love almost for this beautiful waitress. And that's possibly induced by the heroine. He confesses to her what he, who he actually is. So it turns out he was an accountant, big one, acquisitions, major mergers, and he also dealt with Cosa Nostra's money. He literally says the word, and he lost a whole bunch of money. And because the mafia understood it wasn't his fault, he didn't steal it. They kept him alive, which is code of Cosa Nostra, but they literally imprisoned him in this hotel. Now, people should also know Lugano in Switzerland, not only are hotel boring, but Lugano in Switzerland is the most boring city possibly in the Northern Hemisphere, with no offense to the Luganese people. Um, it's a beautiful lake, but, you know, it's fun for six hours. So he is a solitary, timid man. Oh, there's this great line. Uh, do you remember when he says, the girl finally manages to get two words out of him because he never talks to her. She always says hi, he never does. And uh, he notices something about her. He says it to her. And she said, oh, I didn't think you were paying attention to me. And he says that wonderful line, timid people notice everything. They're just very good at not showing it. So this is quintessential Sorrentino, these snippets of, quote, I don't know, wisdom or, um, and that line alone is worth the whole movie. And then, yeah, I really don't want to spoil what happens, but this is what happens when a man, that's the consequences of love. For the first time, this boring accountant completely changes his routine, does things he would normally not do. He even writes a, a warning to himself. He writes a note, don't underestimate the consequences of love. And these actions he would otherwise never do bring him on a trajectory of desperation and ultimately death. And Typically, Sorrentino way, we also have glimpses of what happens to other people's life in this movie, in the hotel, which are absolutely unnecessary. But the way Sorrentino arranges them make them absolutely necessary. So there's subplots and 
protagonists that barely make an appearance, although but the movie couldn't exist without them. One of the most beautiful examples is, you know, that old couple that always plays cards with him. Now they happen to have lost everything. It used to be their hotel. They were obviously aristocrats of some sort that have fallen. And the husband is a cheater. So for whatever reason, no, not for, he's so upset about this girl that he just says, okay, that's it. He points to everyone out at the table that that man is a cheater. And then for no reason at all, ends up giving all the money that he stole from the mafia to this old couple, which is such a Sorrentino way of ending a movie. Yeah, that's, I I think, a very good way of getting at how much uh, puzzlement and mystery there is in the story. There's, you see a a deep but suppressed or slightly sometimes silent need to to make human life count, to show that something like uh, love or compassion, that uh, an understanding of the suffering and the failures of human beings lead people to to make one great heroic act, uh, one act of generosity. There's something crazy or gratuitous about it. But as you say, the the more you look at the sequences of scenes and what happens with these other people that our protagonist is very interested in and indeed spies on. He's an insomniac. He's not just out of the world because he's an Italian in Switzerland. He's out of the world because he's an insomniac in a hotel. As you were saying, nothing ever happens. And how long can you really stare at the lake and the mountains at night? It gets lonely. He he has a stethoscope with which he listens in on the nighttime, bedtime conversation of this very old couple. And as you say, suddenly it's, it's almost like being transported into a 19th century romance. She must have once been very wealthy and aristocratic. She has almost nothing left of all her inheritance because the guy frittered it away at the uh, card table at Monte Carlo. It's like the Dostoevsky short story, The Gambler. uh, But the oddity, the Sorrentino touch is that you don't see this great romantic story of the love between the young man and the young woman, her aristocratic uh, roots and love of danger. This guy's taking advantage of her money. He actually loves her, but he married into money, probably ended up hating himself and wasted the money at the table in one grand gesture to show that he's not bought. But you don't see any of that. You just infer from their story. What you see is that she really loves him and he strangely loves her too. Somehow they've managed to forgive each other for all of these things and stick it together. And they're now on death's door. They're not exactly ready to die or resigned, but there is a kind of satisfaction in the fact that they have managed to hold on to that love through so much trouble. And perhaps in a way it has deepened their love since they are so uh, impossible to dislodge one from the other after all of this suffering. Maybe without the suffering, they would have been boring. Maybe without the suffering, they would not have had any any real conviction about each other, about uh, their lives together. They they used to own the hotel. Now they're just clients. They just have one apartment in their own hotel. So there's a kind of embarrassment, maybe even humiliation there. They they rely on discretion. The hotel sells discretion to the mafia prisoner, Digirolamo, as well as to these old, respectable men. He's, He's from the bottom, in a certain sense, prisoner of the mafia. They're from the old top, from the ancient European aristocracy that doesn't exist anymore. But in a way, it exists. And you see these old remnants there, and they all meet in this one damn place. As, as he spies on them, it seems like maybe he's learning stuff from them, that he, he wants that. Maybe part of what pushes him to love is that he sees their love, 
there's certainly a very striking similarity between the fact that the old uh, gambler, husband, uh, vaguely repentant chancer, he, he says that he wants to, to die a spectacular death, like yes. a spectacular life. He doesn't want to die actually, old age. He hates it. But he can't do that, actually. It's our protagonist who doesn't seem like he would ever do that, who in fact does do it. The Italian um, original language, they use a word at one point during the conversation, rocambolesco comes from rocambole in a novel, French novel term, is, which means, yeah, in a, it's something between spectacular and senseless and adventurous. And it's a theme, if you think about it, it's the same theme that he will take on many years later in The Great Beauty with that old aristocratic couple that basically it's the same story. They pretend to be or the Scalchi, but they were Colonna, which are two real families in uh, in Rome, still alive. And uh, you get a sense, uh, this, it's not, never quite clear, but it's the same pattern. Very, very rich and influential, somehow lost everything. And it's the wife that is always the most, um, let's say, understanding, for lack of a better word, and truly loves evidently quite more desperate uh, male, you know, husband. And uh, there's the beautiful scene, and sorry to, to, to cross over to the great beauty, but that gorgeous scene, which was unfortunately cut, but in the a director's cut, you can see it even better when uh, she has to pay 20 euros, which that scene was cut. So we only seen the theatrical release that after the dinner, she goes back to her old house. They, they live in the basement. She goes back to see her crib where, where she was born in that beautiful palazzo. But what Sorrentino had to took out is that she actually pays the guard 20 bucks to get in. And the cop says to her, listen, this is not your palace anymore. And the very submissive old woman at one point almost ferociously looking fiercely in the eyes and goes, this will always be my parents. You're only a guest here. So sorry to go to the great beauty, but you can see these themes that he's already uh, exploring Sorrentino, human loneliness, um, fallen fallen wealth, fallen families, uh, uh, decay of manners and, and way of lives, vices, gambling, drinking, mafia, uh, for that matter. Uh, yeah, and let's not forget part of the grande, the great beauty that the greatest ma mafioso alive is actually his neighbor which is an essential part of the plot. In The Consequences of Love, it's it's everything he will explore later in his movies is already there. In nuce, we say in Latin, or as a, as a seed, and uh, he will explore those themes uh, all the way to The Hand of God, which is his most biographical movie. I, th I still find it one of my favorite ones uh, because it has so much silence. To go get, get into silences, it's a movie made of of almost, I think if, if one were to measure it, there's more unsaid things than said things. And the way, for example, Olivia Magnani, the waitress, I mean, she's she's got the, the most beautiful face and eyes. And there's this, you know, game of looking at each other without saying a word, uh, but her face says everything and his face also says everything. And if you, Carefully watch. There's only one scene where he smiles 
it, it's it's only for a second, but it's right after where when he told her, you know, he sits in front of her for the first time. He says the first words, and the first words to her are, "This might be the biggest mistake of my life." And the next scene is him quietly smiling for a second while he walks back to his room. For the entirety of the movie, his face is motionless, which I think it's the only time it happens in a performance by Servillo, because he's Neapolitan, very expressive. Uh, Giulio Andreotti in El Divo, also quite motionless, the face, but also lots of makeup, because Andreotti was literally a sphinx. They called they actually called him the sphinx. But this is a, a young, I mean, not, not young, but younger Servillo, completely devoid of any emotions and, and, and facial expression. And there's there's so much talent in that. Because let's not forget, he comes from the theater. Before meeting Sorrentino, he was only doing theater. Sorrentino had to beg him to do a movie with him. And this great collaboration was, was born, not unlike, uh, you know, uh, Mastroianni and Fellini. I, I've rewatched it recently because I knew uh, this interview was about to happen and nothing. I could just watch it over and over again. It always gives you this stimuli. For example, I remember him talking, I was present about the movie a few years ago. And um, there's one scene, there's only one action scene really, which is the car. So the money arrives from the mafia and he has to bring the money from the hotel to the bank which is literally across the road. But he takes the car and he shows the script. Sorrentino shows the script. That scene is described in two lines and it will take him two days to shoot. While other scenes that have 15 pages of, of, of script took a few hours. And Sorrentino is funny because he was trying to explain, you have no idea how hard it was to convince the producer and uh, all the people on set why it was absolutely essential that 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 two lines of dialogue would take two days and 15 pages two hours typical sorrentino style but you and, and you follow the car in every part you know the transit from the hotel to this to this to this bank and there's this whole ritual of the money counting which is also so well done because he insists that the money millions and millions of dollars are counted by hand and there's another great line so he's He's not even looking at all these people counting the money. He's just facing the window, smoking his omnipresent cigarette. And I think the director of the bank asks him, may I ask you, sir, why do you insist that we count money without the machines? And and Servillo, I mean, Tita, doesn't even turn around. And he simply says, one of the great one-liners, because we should never lose faith in men. Oh, no, in human. I, I know how they translated it. But we should never lose faith in man. It's just fantastic. Just for these one-liners, you get all of Sorrentino encapsulated in, in these, they're not even dialogues. They're like mo- a soliloquy, which is different from monologues. That's that's what I always come away with, that sense of yeah, how unnatural he understood human nature. These are somehow uh, statements that, that put you in mind of the old manners. But and, and therefore also that there's a kind of fight against uh, the future, against the world of machine counting in that case. But uh, throughout the story, the importance of uh, human beings and how fascinating the actors are, this is somehow connected with this style of storytelling, where, as you say, so much is not being said. There is so much you're waiting 
to see happen. And sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. It's what is uniquely interesting uh, about human beings, the, the possibilities, and, and how do those possibilities uh, come, even come to the surface in our minds as guesses, as desires, as longing in relation to the images, the music we see on screen, in relation to these actors. Sorrentino's idea that Tony Sergio should be the Italian uh, actor of the 21st century of the beginning is uh, indeed as, as inspired as the, the, the great collaboration between Mastroianni and Fellini. You want to watch Tony Servilio. You're pretty sure he's going to do something interesting, but it's not clear what. It's, it's on the yeah. basis of that attraction that it's acceptable, the least acceptable thing in our society to sit and wait, shut up, to be alone, to stare, for example, to just wait for something to happen or guess at what something might be not to be in a hurry, not to do an elevator pitch, not to try to impress people or to wow them or to attract their attention, but to count on it and in a certain strange way to disdain it. Tony Servilio has a good idea about what this character is about, why he is so fastidious, what he has to defend behind his one-liners, behind his uh, great confidence. And, and, and uh, he has the, the, this very theatrical control of the audience he knows they will be with him minute by minute, scene by scene, up until there is a great reward of puzzlements and crazy unexpected decisions that uh, make you think, I knew there was something odd about this guy. I just did not know what. And then when you see what's odd about him, it's hard to believe. As I said, the first and second halves of the movie are, are very distinct. There's a lot of action in the second half, next to nothing in the first half. And then, of course, the love is, is happens in the second half. But little by little, every five to ten minutes, another disclosure about the character pushes you onward, rewards your curiosity, but also deepens your curiosity as you begin to feel much closer to this man who plays everything so close to his vest. He does not want to reveal himself. It's strangely not of our times because he's not an exhibitionist. It's an actor who is not acting. It's an actor who is not trying to show off. As an actor, even, the immobility of his face almost makes you suffer in sympathy for his own suffering as an Italian exiled among the Swiss. That's a hard life. As an insomniac, <laughs> as a man who can only stare at this woman and can never talk to her because he has this terrible secret, this burden on his life. That, that makes him feel duty-bound to, to die almost day by day, doing nothing, to make up for a terrible mistake, to make up for a terrible arrogance, you know, being playing with so much money, being one uh, among the incredibly wealthy and their schemes. And, uh, and it's only perhaps, uh, you know, in, in my case, it took a couple of viewings to, to get to think two thoughts that uh, led me to say, okay, Sebastian, we must have a podcast about this movie. The <laughs> first is that the this this uh, terribly lonely man, uh, you know, must once have been a, a man who wanted to conquer chance, a man who takes Fortuna by the hair, as as Machiavelli famously puts it in Principe Twenty Five. All of this playing with money, he says he once negotiated the, the acquisition of a big oil a and gas corporation. Oil, yeah. Exactly. Now that is, you know, 20th century stuff. It's energy. It's power at your command. It's money. It seems an, an, an infinite resource. There's always more money in oil. There's money being made in oil as we are speaking in vast quantities. 
And, 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 and so, you know, that's what he aspired to, control of faith. And even the fact that he was in uh, accounting in a certain strange way speaks to that because it means that you're playing with numbers is, is more important than reality. You're going to control reality with your accounting tricks. It's crazy, maybe, but that is exactly our society. And, uh, and now he's in a different phase of his life where I think he's trying to do the same thing from an artistic or aesthetic point of view. His fastidiousness, his extreme reticence and control over what he says, the, you know, as is typical in a society of deference to education in Italian, people keep calling him dottore, dottore. They don't yeah. mean doctor, they just mean a learned man, it's, you know, to be a PhD, I guess. The, uh, and, and he certainly acts the part. Uh, uh, every word is a sentence. Every exclamation is an imposition on everyone else to uh, listen to his wit and to uh, be impressed. The, he's used to people being deferential, to other characters waiting on his silences or his puff of the cigarette before he deigns to even speak to them to answer their questions. Uh, he's very imperious, except to the woman, of course, whom he hurts by ignoring her, but then he doesn't treat her in this uh, way in which he treats everybody else. There's one thing he's not, in fact, trying to control. If anything, he's trying to escape her power rather than get her in his, his power. But this fastidiousness, these uh, very old-fashioned and very impressive manners, as well as his beautiful suitings, the very aristocratic uh, quality of the hotel, there is nothing modern or regular or, uh, uh, how does one put it, mass-produced about it. All of this suggests a desire to control chance, but aesthetically, artistically. And uh, this made me think about what Sorrentino's interest is in the story. It's, uh, you know, it is not unusual for, for Sorrentino's movies to be about artists. His first movie with Tony Servilio, as you said, One Man Up, was uh, Servillo played the rock star. Uh, yeah. Here he plays a weird literary figure. He plays a journalist in The Great Beauty. Then uh, The Hand of God is about the young man who is going to become a movie director, writer type. Uh, artists are not unusual in his stories. Youth, of course, is also about artists. His crazy movie with Sean Penn in drag, that's also about a rock musician. Really, most of his movies, A, have Tony Servillo in them somewhere, and B, they are about artists. They're about the terrible plight of the artist in the modern world, the, the great um, seclusion, the great uh, claustrophobia of the first half of the movie, the one place, this hotel, one room that he keeps going back to where he lives. Uh, all of this seclusion shows something that is uh, uh, imposed on artists in our society. Artists are not important to us as they were in the 19th century, in certain ways in the 20th century. Art does not play that part in society. Uh, largely, say we have replaced culture by technology. Uh, if we want innovation or genius, we look for somebody to invent AI. We don't look for somebody to be Sorrentino. And, and so in that sense, uh, the, the artist is as marginal as this Italian in Switzerland. In another sense, the seclusion is self-imposed. Part of the wonder of the movie, I think, I am right, but I'm not sure because I only thought about it when I watched it last time uh, yesterday, is that Sorrentino insists at this young stage in his career, and it's a very Sorrentino thing to be, uh, he's sort of like, uh, Tony, Tony Servillo to Sorrentino is sort of like Bob Dylan's voice to Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan was a 20-year-old who wanted to sound like he was 60. 
He was a kid from the Midwest who wanted to sound like he had been possibly a, a raving preacher, drinker, gunslinger, yeah. miner, somebody like had all of the experiences of the great American expansion story. But he was just a kid from the Midwest. He was not. He was pretending. Servilio serves that purpose with brio for Sorrentino. The young Sorrentino wants you to see this old man seeing what's on his mind. That, that if you live in a society that exiles you, that forces you into conformism and the habit, a, a strictness of habit that is unnatural to you, then you must use that. You must turn that into a resource artistically and spiritually. You must eavesdrop into the uh, lives of your neighbors and find out the great love story and the romantic adventurer, rocambolesque, uh, you know, uh, almost like Jean Valjean uh, story yeah. in, in, in their own lives. You must look at the oddities of our society with respectability, possibly hiding organized crime. People who think they're on top of the world, whose lives are destroyed by a mistake and you never hear of them again. All of these things can create interest. Uh, an artist can, you know, without having a Napoleon, whose great story of rise and fall you can tell, you can look into the possibilities of life. You can look into the loneliness and the dissatisfaction of other people. You can become a champion of the secret and suppressed love of beauty of modern man. And uh, Sorrentino certainly turned himself into that champion. Nobody gave him the job. He took it. Nobody wanted him to make La Grande Belleza, for example. He just did it. And uh, even if they didn't exactly like him to begin with for doing it, they all learned to love him for it. And this is, in a way, already visible in the Consequenza della Morte because the movie showed in Cannes. It's just his second movie, and it's already competing in the greatest festival in the world. And uh, he didn't win there, but in Italy, he, he won every award that he could have won, really, at the Italian Cinema Prizes, Davide Donatello Awards. So uh, people noticed an artist speaking up making himself felt in his powers as, as a director. But I'm not sure people notice the, the spiritual uh, dimension of the movie, this demand that in an age of alienation, an artist should put together the, the drama of humanity in, in the story of dislocation that is typical of his times, in the story of a younger generation that is in the shadow of an older generation, where you can't really do that much. It seems sometimes that everything has been done. All that is left is to wander. All that is left is to get lost, maybe, or to realize you are lost. But uh, but instead, he, he tries to piece out humanity and the possibility of this somewhat timid, somewhat fastidious man, realizing that his unhappiness, his insomnia, his estrangement from his family, so much of the story, we, of course, cannot cover it all here. And uh, as I said, I watched the movie again. I was very struck by things that I hadn't really noticed before. That there is so much charm to the combination of slowly moving cameras and the music. I, I don't notice the same things every time I look at it. A different thing grabs me and I follow that thing. This time around, I, I was, I was uh, focusing on this issue that since the narrator is so literary and he's so inquisitive about other people's lives, exactly that key line that you mentioned, Sebastian, that he's a timid man and therefore he observes very much. He just doesn't show. He just doesn't say it. He's, he's, he looks at things, but well, what if he looks at things with an artistic eye? He, he, he has made the work of art of his own behavior to impress people in a certain way. But, uh, but what if this is really about the condition of the artist, uh, the seclusion and the longing for fame, success, an audience, but also for an ability to 
use that that fame or that success to show people the, the drama of human being and therefore that it is a very interesting and a very rewarding thing to be human and go through that drama if if you think about it in terms of what will you live and die for and which which turns out to be the secret of this this uh, uh, protagonist Tita Di Girolamo he discovers perhaps to some extent to his own surprise that he is not incapable of killing and dying that he is not stuck in a kind of hotel existence day by day uh, with the delusion that if he does his job he'll live forever he wants to escape that. There's something almost existentialist in the way in which Louis Ferdinand Céline is, is a nihilist and an existentialist, but an inheritor of the tradition of the novel, of the modern philosophy of adventure, the confrontation between man and society. Is there anything meaningful spiritually to individuality rather than conformism? And, you know, if you look at every, almost every single character, protagonist of his movies, they're obviously... A tragic in the Greek sense of tragic, but also they're mostly people who feel too much in whatever shape or form, but they feel too much and it's it's unbearable to them. So Jeb Gambardella can't still forget his first love and everything touches, even smells and, and places. He can't go even to that island that he's been asked to go for months because it still reminds him of one episode some 40 years earlier in youth was supposed to be played by Servillo and then Sir Michael Caine uh, stepped in and he did a very, very good job. But again, someone who feels too much and this accountant who has no imagination because he says so on the very first line and you, you only glimpse how much he feels by his comments and his thoughts. And in the end, they all kind of end in a tragic way. And I, I I think that Sorrentino is trying to, well, obviously he's the director. They always do that like every writer would. He calls it in Italian, un senso di, del, del saper stare al mondo, which roughly translated means the subtle art of being able to stay in the world. So there is the world. It's a stoic, stoic point of view. We have to be in this world. There's no escape. And we take it with, if possible, grace. And we try to do, you know, acts of kindness that at least make the world slightly less hellish, which is something June Peterson, incidentally, would also say. Uh, so every protagonist in Sonatino's movie, they redeem themselves with small acts of kindness, of incredible and almost pointless generosity. And um, but in, yeah, in and on themselves, they're like they're losers, not losers in the modern sense that oh. They, they're very accomplished, successful, rich, well, but they lost something in themselves and they tried to find it again in the smallest acts of, of human behavior. You know, there's one anecdote of Sorrentino that I love. There's a great TED talk. If it's subtitled in English, please go see it. Sorrentino was the first one many years ago to do the first Italian TED talk. And you can see the most awkward, I mean, lovingly awkward in a Wes Anderson kind of way, Sorrentino can barely speak in public. And um, he says this funny story where he says, you know, people have stopped inviting me at dinners and lunches because what I do all the time is just sit in silence, ignore the conversation with the people right in front of me and keep focusing on the other tables, just waiting that they betray themselves with, with one small gesture, one small act. 
where you know the whole facade comes down. And uh, I think this shows very good in one line of the great beauty. And it's the scene, that gorgeous restaurant where Jeb Gambardella takes, takes what's her name sub, uh, in the movie? Ramona. Ramona, played by a wonderful Sabrina uh, Ferilli. And he, he, and he says, observe that table over there. And it's a priest and a nun just having, having a meal together. And he leans over to Ramona and says, you have no idea how much you can learn by living in by observing tables and and living in a crossroad of religious institutions and uh, even if you read Sorrentino's book uh, they they're very almost like um, David Foster Wallace-esque like the fly in the room kind of perspective where he sees everything the problem with seeing everything it's a weight on your shoulders you feel the weight of the world you feel too much you see too much so you become either shy or timid or a false extrovert like Jeb Gambardella. Yeah, I think that's a very important thing that you know, for the artist to, to make a sense of the society, he also needs to find things in society that we are interested in and uh, likely protagonists. And then the point of contact between art and society is this exaggerated sensitivity. There's so much in common and there's so much apart between these protagonists like in The Consequences of Love or in The Great Beauty who obsess about the world around them and the people who just scroll Instagram all day. They're all painfully sensitive. They're somehow aware of their unhappiness. They can't quite tell what, what do you think you will see that is so beautiful that will redeem the world in your eyes or, or, or will redeem you maybe if you can do something? What do you expect to see if you obsess over these things that will make life worth living or livable at least? It's not clear, but I think that's why people like to watch his movies. They recognize that in some uh, crass way, a lot of us are in this troubling position. We're looking at the world rather than exactly being part of it, but at the same time, uh, painfully, honestly, obsessing about people. Is there something? Will you see something about these people? If you stare at them, will you notice one telling moment where somebody's not on show, they're not trying to impress you, just notice something you're not even supposed to notice, but that tells you, okay, this is a real human being. You can tell because there's this weird thing that just happened and nobody would do it if it were a choice, but they didn't know they were doing it. They didn't know they were being watched either. That secretly being human reveals itself if you if you have some patience and pay attention if you're very sensitive. And in a way, it's a reward for the pain that you feel if you are that sensitive. These artistic protagonists have to put on some kind of crazy mask simply to deal with the world. You have to have stock answers for when you are harassed to prove that you're normal. You also have to defend yourself from all sorts of things that people will want from you. But at the same time, uh, there is uh, that pain, sensitivity, the opportunity to see something you deeply want to see in the world, human beings who have some capacity for spontaneity. And when you observe them, at least when you transform that observation into art, it turns out that that capacity for spontaneity means that suddenly where you really stand in the world is revealed to you. For one strange moment, perplexing moment, you realize that things are not what you used to think they are, or not, not what you're used to or what you want to think they are. And then you have these opportunities to realize what it really means to be human, why uh, the, the, the things that make you feel comfortable also are disappointing. 
or the things that make you feel uncomfortable are oddly attractive. Why, although we, uh, you know, say consequences of love, uh, kind of banker in uh, Switzerland, that's the end of history. Nothing ever happens anymore and everything is so boring, you want to kill yourself, but you can't, because even suicide demands some kind of strange passion. But, uh, but in that situation, nevertheless, there is a capacity in human beings to surprise you. There's a capacity for yourself to surprise yourself. Your uh, humanity can come out suddenly. And, uh, and, and if it is artistically tended to, it, it allows you to make your way to yourself. And uh, if there's anything that uh, Sorrentino seems to always have tried to teach people, it's that self-knowledge comes not by obsessing about yourself, it's obsessing about other people. Yes. It doesn't come from self-importance. It comes from this, maybe in a way, naive or uh, uh, unimpressive curiosity about the world, about other people, an interest in what goes on in their lives that might reveal to you suddenly. It's not as boring as all that. Potentially, there's at least behind uh, people's pretense uh, a great human drama. Even at the end of history, our unhappiness shows that we love beauty more than we can can admit, because it's more than we know what to do with. If we didn't, we would just be happy or not even know we're unhappy. We would be as incapable of that as, uh, you know, as the, the, the local cat pet. Uh, you know, people like their cats because the cats don't seem unhappy. And <laughs> they think maybe cat is clever. Maybe it's better not to be human. Maybe it's better to be a cat. So it suggests maybe it's better to be human, not despite, but because of the pain. The uncomfort will remind you that, that there, there's something intoxicating about beauty. And maybe the only way you can see it now is that you're bored or unhappy with this life that seems impossible to change. But you wouldn't be bored if you didn't have some nagging suspicion that beauty could transport you into a, another way of being human that's much more intense and much more revealing of yourself. Amen. And it's, um, sorry, while you were talking, this scene came to mind again in the great beauty. Uh, my favorite line actually, they're at the terrace and they're conversing, and there's a poet who doesn't say a word in the whole movie. And uh, he's the most famous poet alive, apparently. And uh, the guest of the terrace asks uh, Jeb Gambarella, why does he never talk? And you can see how he zooms in on Jeb, that beautiful shot, and Jeb replies, because he listens. It's all said in that one line. No one listens anymore. No one pays attention. No one, no one observes. We confuse looking with observing, watching with you know, pondering and, and analyzing things. Um, we're not interested in details anymore. It's just give me the bigger picture. No, 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 I don't want the bigger picture. Give me the detail. You know, there's a great line in uh, Nabokov, caress the detail, the, the divine detail. And we're creating this uh, society that, that is so focused on that little screen over there that they're missing. I mean, it's a it's 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 a it's a cliche and might be banal, but it, it is killing us. Yeah, yes. I was recently rereading Oriana Fallaci, great Italian journalist, many great interviews, uh, collected art uh, interviews. And she interviewed the, 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 the divas of Hollywood and the great politicians and statesmen. What is impressive when you read, let's say, past uh, journalists is um, how much they observed in the psyche of people, how, how many nuances they can grasp, even just from a, 
a small you know gesture of the hand or how they talk and i read a lot uh, contemporary journalists i read all day actually and, and there's many interviews every day someone is interviewed the questions these journalists ask they're so banal and, and boring it's it's just about what they're doing which is usually nothing in italy by the way but they're not trying to get into the, the psyche the mind of I mean, I remember when Oriana Falaci interviewed the, the, the Khomeini, the imam, the leader of Iran, she tore his skin apart. He was one of the most dangerous, powerful men. She tore him apart. And now it's just like the typical Italian interview nowadays is, why are you so wonderful, sir? It's embarrassing. So I'm, I'm sorry to go on a, on a tangent here. The, okay, here's in a nutshell why I love Sorrentino in every movie, because there's always a sense that he's a careful observer of human nature and human behavior. And he truly, truly pays attention to the detail, the divine detail. Sometimes even to the extent where he sacrifices a, a usually non-existing plot just to follow the detail. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's true. That uh, There's one key thing that we can uh, share from Sorrentino with people. It's that the works of the artists, the poems of the poet are listening, are paying attention to people, are, you know, they are not impositions on the world, they are their artful conclusions from, derived from observing the world, from trying to understand people. Uh, and, and indeed, we used to have more art and better writing, including journalists, because there was less need to flatter. It was easier to say the reward you get is, is the beauty of the work of art. And it'll be perhaps somewhat difficult of access, but it is very rewarding. You don't need the flattery. You can do without the flattery. There's not flattery already in the world. We don't need success worship. We don't need more celebrity worship. It's bad enough as it is. We don't need this uh, silliness of the screens. We never pay attention to the details because there's never enough time for things or, or enough guidance to make you think, what about this? In what way is this a little out of place, a little strange? Where might this lead you if you start pulling at this thread, if you start following this fascinating, unusual thing? That's what art depends on, uh, cultivating in the audience that kind of curiosity that makes you think it's not that this plot is like every other plot in this genre, it's like every other genre. You've heard it all before, you've seen it all before, you're sick to death of it, you're bored of all your options when you're streaming or, uh, or social media. It's... Uh, in, in this specific case, if, if lock on to this one image, to these sounds, where might they lead you? What might they stir inside your passions? And what might that show you about them? That, that's the oddity, that it's the artists uh, who are, still believe, as you were saying about Nabokov, the, the divine detail. They still believe human beings are very, very interesting. If you look at people, you'll find something that will make life worth living for you. And uh, that's uh, that you could say is the sense in which poetry, like politics, concerns itself with justice. Uh, poets get so much out of understanding mankind, but they also give something back. They, they do a public good in return by encouraging this ability to focus in on a detail, to let it tell you what it's trying to tell you that maybe you're not even trying to notice. The, the ability to notice things and figure out what you're not noticing when you're not noticing them and therefore go on to the next step, that's uh, that's what makes the world both bearable and rewarding. There's something unique to artists is that they suggest that going through that difficulty is, is what keeps people from being bored to death in a world where they feel nothing ever happens. 
it's uh, it, it's it, it's trying to get people to to be satisfied to an extent with our lives if we make more of them, if we see that in our lives the whole human drama somehow plays out, the, the longings, the unhappiness, these things show you a struggle to be uh, fully human, not to be merely uh, bored and boring, but also not to try to escape it by being also interesting or also clever, not to try to, to simply put up with things, not to try simply to escape things, like uh, Girolamo thinks his younger brother, who is a surf uh, instructor in the Caribbean, who is going to the Maldives to teach uh, surfing, who is uh, handsome and long-haired and vigorous, wants to uh, seduce everybody in sight. Uh, but Girolamo looks at him and says, you're not even a man, you're just a boy. You never really grew up because you don't know anything about loss and you don't know what it means to try to hold on to things, to, to try to hold on to your humanity, really. Yeah. And uh, you could say that's the difference between Tony Servilio and the kind of celebrities with which competes embodied in that uh, younger brother. Lovable, but confused. Can't exactly blame him, but can't take him seriously either. I think that's the most perfect conclusion. Sebastian, thank you very much for joining me. Let's talk about Il Divo next time. Let's talk, uh, you know, Giulio Androtti and Prima Repubblica and... Uh, the whole drama of trying to put Italy oh, back together okay. after the war, Sorrentino's one really political film, and then also, you know, uh, well, uh, well more than that, right? It's a Sorrentino thing to say that to talk about politics at the highest level is to do science fiction. We don't know what's like there. <laughs> yeah, it's um, Il Divo is one of definitely the one where we can spend even longer time discussing because it has been stirring discussions in Italy ever since it came out till now, because Andreotti was such a lasting figure for 50 years. He ruled almost with his party, Italy. So yeah, there's lots we can talk about in Livo. And also I've got some interesting news. This is sheer, sheer coincidence or chance or actually another ones of God's gifts, unexpected gifts to me. I just happened to be in Naples very recently, like two weeks ago, three weeks ago. And um, I was staying in this gorgeous house that someone a very different gave me, and it's overlooking the, the sea, Posillipo. But I hear all this noise, and there's all these the, these trucks right under my window. I said, "Oh, what, what, what a what a pity! I've got all this beautiful view, but all this noise, all that. What's happening?" So I go downstairs, and what, what's actually happening here? And someone says, "Oh, they're shooting a movie." And I said, "What movie? Paolo Sorrentino's new movie." I said, "What are the odds?" So I said, okay, all is forgiven. You can make all the noise you want, Paolo. So I actually saw him in action and he's shooting right now his new movie, which rumors say will be called L'Apparato Humano, which if you remember is the title. It's the only thing we know about Jeff Gambardella's book, the one and only book he wrote. We only know the title, which is The Human Apparatus, L'Apparato Humano. And apparently this new movie filmed in Naples coming out later next this year, will be the title of uh, of the book. Just, uh, you know, he's the, the most interesting European director. Good to know that he, he has another ace up his sleeve, so to speak, he's working on something new, and that it will tie into La Grande Belletta somehow. I mean, I'm just looking forward to that movie and Napoleon. Titus, my friend, and everyone, uh, thank you so much for having me. Very um, good to talk again, and let's do this again soon. Anytime for you. Much All the best, Sebastian. Ciao.